Hey everybody, welcome to another Ithaca Bound podcast episode. I'm your host, Andrew Schiestel, and this is the podcast where we explore history and mythology in the Mediterranean basin. I'm joined today with Dr. Joel Christensen for a conversation about the Greek mythological hero, Achilles. Dr. Christensen is professor of classical studies at Brandeis University based in the U.S., His research areas are in Homeric poetry, literary theory, narrative traditions, and performance. He's co-author of the book, Homer's Thebes, Epic Rivalries, and the Appropriation of Mythical Pasts, which was published by Harvard University Press. And he's author of the book, The Many-Minded Man, The Odyssey, Psychology, and the Therapy of Epic, which was published by Cornell University Press. Welcome to the call, Joel. Hey, thanks for having me, Andrew. You're welcome. I'm looking forward to speaking with you today. So as a question to kick the dialogue uh, off, and as a uh, summary type um, question, who was the, uh, who was Achilles? <laughs> who was Achilles? Very simple um, question to start. <laughs> all right, so I'll separate Achilles from the Iliad for now, right? Achilles is a hero from the Greek tradition. And what a hero means is a couple different things. Um, oftentimes when we're talking about hero in the modern world, we're talking about something completely different from the ancient world. And a hero in ancient Greece is someone from a specific generation. Um, and that means generation before the world of modern man, what Hesiod, the epic poet, calls the Iron Age of Man. So the generation of heroes is that last generation before men and gods stop hanging out together, really, right? And Achilles is a son of a sea nymph named Thetis, son of a mortal hero named Peleus, um, and sort of one of the last big men heroes uh, before the race of heroes ended. Now, just sort of as a code to that definition, the race of heroes, um, these are the groups of people who, again, according to Hesiod, uh, died fighting either around Thebes or fighting around Troy. So hero has, has a couple different meanings to it. One is that you're part of a generation. Two, you do a specific kind of thing. And the specific kind of thing heroes do is they either cause suffering or they suffer. Um, so Achilles is the son of a sea nymph, And to add a little bit to his larger mythology, I don't know how far you want me to go here, um, but there was a legend that, um, or really a prophecy, that Zeus would have a child greater than his father, right? And Zeus went around trying to figure out who that was. Eventually, he found out from Prometheus, after some trouble, that it was to be Thetis who would father a child, uh, sorry, mother a child greater than his father. And so Zeus arranged um, for uh, Thetis to meet or marry or to be subdued by Peleus on the voyage of the Argo and Jason of the Argonauts. So almost immediately you can see that what Achilles also was is someone whose sort of heroic DNA is wired into many of the other mythscapes, the tales of ancient Greece, uh, because that voyage where Thetis met Peleus um, also ended up in the marriage banquet of Thetis and Peleus, where the golden apple was thrown out, claimed by three goddesses, Athena, Hera, um, and Aphrodite, which went to the judgment of Paris, which went to the Trojan War, where Achilles died. Right? Um, so that's his basic sort of potted biography um, outside of the Iliad. And there's a lot more, but that's the start. Yeah, that's a great answer. And uh you touched on a couple of uh, questions I was going to br- bring up. So this is very good for a contextual um, type answer. So let's, let's uh, 
let's talk a little bit more about his lineage then. So he's um, son of a deity, uh, the mother, who who was um, Thetis, and then uh, also son of, on the male side, a, a mortal, um, Peleus. So Peleus, so Peleus was a uh, grandson of Zeus. Is that cor- correct as well? Yeah, Can so you talk a little bit way, more about that? Yeah, so the way that works is there's a guy named Iacus, um, which in, you know, in Greek it's spelled you know, A-I-A-K-O-S. In English we usually say A-E-A-C-U-S, um, who's a son of Zeus um, and a nymph-like character called Aegina. Um, or Aegina, depending on, on the tradition. Um, and Iacchus had two sons, and the sons were Peleus and Telamon. And Telamon's actually the father of Ajax, who becomes mm-hmm. important in the tradition, and Peleus is the father of Achilles. Um, so in that way, then Achilles is a great-grandson of Zeus, right? Um, and this story of Peleus and Telamon sort of is a central Greece sort of narrative, converging in a way on Boeotia or Thebes, um, with the marriage or with the rape of vagina by uh, Zeus. Okay. And because he comes from a uh, one side is mortal um, in terms of his father, Peleus, um, even though, and you said he was a, uh, considered a great grandson of Zeus. Is that yeah, correct? Okay. Um, so even though he is in the line of lineage of Zeus, it, because his father was mortal, um, and his mother was immortal, but because his father was mortal, this made him mortal. Yeah. And so this is weird thing that happens um, in Greek genealogies, right? And the, 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 the central sort of generating um, principle of the theogony or the creation of the gods in the universe in Greece is that biological relationships rule everything, right? But there's also, it's the case that generations tend to be worse than generations before. Um, so we have the couple different ways that human beings were created. One of them is they just come to be lesser generations from God. So Zeus and Aegina, who are both like immortals in a way, uh, give birth to mortal children, Telamon and Peleus. And so that's part of that biological principle. And then you have other traditions like where Prometheus and Epimetheus, his brother, make human beings um, or even others that the Titans made them from the blood of their enemies. Um, so it, it's just it's a weird thing. Um, but it has to in part do with context. So from the world of heroic epics, you can't make new gods, right? And so it's clear that if you're the child of a god, like Aeneas or Sarpedon, the son of Zeus, or Achilles, you're, you are immortal, even though you have one immortal parent. Yeah, okay. Um, what is the earliest citation of Achilles in um in tradition well i mean i i think you know there there are probably some base paintings with achilles name on them some other images which people have identified as achilles which come as early as the sixth century bce um and then it really depends on how you date um the fragments of hesiod and homer i tend to think that their textualization when they're written down is rather late I would put it as late as the fourth century um, 
BCE, but I'm not in the mainstream on that. Most people would put them anywhere from the 8th century to the 6th century. Um, so we have a basic sort of dueling um, earliest point there, either somewhere in Basard um, or in the in Hesiod and the Iliad, um, where you get Achilles uh, as, a, as a full person. You actually get him um, uh, mentioned in the wooing of Helen, which is a fragment of um, Hesiod's uh, catalog of women. Okay. Um, and we'll obviously get to Homer's the Iliad. What did um, Hesiod write about in terms of Achilles? Um, so Hesiod says very little about uh, Achilles. Um, I mean, we have three foolish poems by Hesiod, the Theogony, which tells the creation of the universe, the works and days, which is, you know, wisdom literature that doesn't talk about heroes much. Um, and then the shield of Heracles, which is really just about Heracles. Um, but you get him in um, the fragments of um, the catalog of women, um, which is just uh, originally was a genealogical poem uh, that told about all these mothers and their children of the heroes. Um, and we mentioned the that Achilles, if he had come, would have won the Helen as his bride. And that's about it. Okay. Okay. Um, and so, and so, an interesting point um, you made. So you you um, you theorize. That you postulate that uh, Homer's The Iliad was written in the fourth century BCE. Is, is that correct? And if so, then uh, presumably the tradition of Achilles still predates that. It's, it, that would have been earlier than that, even. Yeah, I mean, we, we look, we know that there's good reasons that people think the Iliad and the Odyssey were composed as early as the eighth century BCE. Where I differ is I think that we had living oral tradition then and earlier but that the poems we have weren't written down um, until probably late fifth century, early fourth, um, really uh, during um, the high point of Athenian culture. Um, so it's, it's more about what the process from performance and composition through to writing down looked like. Okay, what's, what's known about the actual name Achilles? Can you speak more about the actual name from an etymo etymological perspective and also knowing that we're speaking English right now and uh, um, the, we're talking about someone who wa was a Greek hero? So um, I'll give you the a humorous etymology first and then I'll give you yep, the most go for it. <laughs> The humorous one is that his name means lipless, Achilles, so without lips, um, because he was never breastfed by his mom. This is an early Byzantine um, uh, na naming, um, and it has to do with the fact that most Greek hero names are what we call speaking names. They have meanings that communicate their identity in some way, right? Um, so Odysseus, or Odysseus in Greek, is said to mean the hateful one, right, for various reasons, although there are versions of it, Ulysseus, that means the scarred man, which is appropriate because it has to do with, you know, his scarred leg. So Achilles um, is popularly uh, etymologized as from two words, right? So the full name, in, in ancient Greek, the name is Achilles, which looks like Achos for grief and Laos for host or army. Um, so one of the popular etymologies that the Homerist Greg Nagy really favors is woe for the host or sorrow for the army. And one of the reasons why this seems especially appropriate is there is a parallel name in the female form from a different root for the Amazon queen Penthesilea, right, whose name also means sort of grief for the army or the army's grief. Um, and so in some way or another, Achilles' name speaks to 
pain being caused to an army. Hmm. And I think if we look at sort of what he does in the Iliad, this name makes sense. Okay, so we're working our way to the Iliad. Um, so is what's the first citation in, in writing that, that is clearly uh, Achilles that you're aware of? Is it the Iliad or something else? Yeah, it's the Iliad. I mean, so, you know, there are, there's a lot of debate about whether or not Hesiodic fragments um, would be there. And I think, you know, we have base inscriptions that have parts of his name, um, which are older in their form, right? So like the Iliad we have has been transposed and transcribed many times, right? So our earliest fragments go back to the second century BCE, while some of our vase inscriptions go back to the fifth, sixth century CE, right? But if we say that the epics come from eighth to sixth century, um, the Iliad and the Odyssey are the clearest, earliest uh, attestations of his name. Um, but how complex they are um, indicate that there are stories behind those stories. The story of Achilles have been told for a long time. Okay. So in the Iliad, um, can you summarize, for someone that may not have read the Iliad, um, can you summarize, um, and it's a fairly big book, so it's not necessarily an easy thing to summarize, but can you summarize his role in the, the Iliad um, so that for someone that... Um, you know, just just hasn't read it, uh, is wondering about who this person was in the Iliad. Okay, um, so I'll do it in two ways. One, mm -hmm. I'll just talk about sort of his social and military role, um, and then I'll get to sort of what he does in the plot of the poem in brief, okay? Mm -hmm. um, so Achilles is one of many captains of individual nations that go to fight the Trojan War. Book two of the Iliad, you get a catalog. There's something like 1,216 ships that come um, from Greece against Troy, and Achilles leads a contingent of the Myrmidons from a weird, from a rather unknown city called Thea. So he is the captain with Patroclus, um, who is his best friend or lover, depending on the tradition, and with their advisor, Phoenix, who is his teacher. Um, so that's his role, but he's also the biggest and baddest heroes of the Greeks. He's described as the most beautiful of the Greek heroes, and he's fated to be needed to uh, take the city. Right? His actions are going to be um, incontrovertibly part of the city's fall in a way. Um, so he is the biggest and strongest of the Greek heroes, partly because he is the son of a goddess and uh, he is favored by Zeus. Uh, but where we start with the Iliad, of course, it's been nine years since they got to Troy. Um, and Achilles gets into a, an argument with Agamemnon, the leader of the army. Um, so basically the, the situation at Troy is you have a bunch of people who are kings in their own cities, right? And they come leading their own armies and it's unclear who's in charge. Agamemnon is, but when they have problems, they come into disagreements. Um, so the Iliad starts with a conflict over, over plague. Agamemnon takes a prize away from Achilles. We can talk about that more. And then Achilles' function in the epic is really to withdraw from battle. He leaves battle because he's been slighted and dishonored in book one. And in book nine, so nine books later, they try to get him back. And then his best friend is killed in book 16. And then his rage takes over and he kills Hector. Um, so the poem starts centering Achilles as a subject. The first line in Greek is, Goddess, sing the rage of Pelian Achilles. Um, and then the um, poem is about different types of rage. First, his rage at, at Agamemnon and his people. 
and then his rage at really, I think, himself in the world at the death of Patroclus that he takes out on Hector. Um, and then so the poem ends with him resolving some of that rage by dining with Priam, Hector's father. Um, so that, that's, sort of, that's a real thumbnail sketch. There's a lot of detail I left out. Uh, but that's his basic function. He's a chief captain, and he drives the plot with his anger and outsized force. Your answer was very uh, detailed for the amount of time that you had. That was great, <laughs> Joel. Excellent. <laughs> okay, so uh, would you go as far as saying that Achilles was the protagonist in the Iliad? And, and uh, if so, that might be a short answer. But if not, um, then then elaborate, please. Well, so, I mean, I don't really know um, what a protagonist is, right, from, from a Homeric perspective. I'm going to complicate it. I mean, he is a central figure. But part of what makes the Iliad so amazingly complex um, is that it doesn't really take the side of its central figures, right? Um, mm -hmm. And it's hard. Like, the poem does talk about his rage at the beginning, right? Um, but he's only, like, he's absent for most, for two-thirds of the act. And then he comes back and drives it. Mm. Um, so I would say, like, if there's a protagonist of the Iliad, I would say it's human beings, right? It's a series of people who are variations. Mm. So I think you need Diomedes, Achilles, Agamemnon, Menelaus, Hector, and their families. Uh, but you could say that Achilles is a central character. Um, but I don't think we're supposed to root for him. It's a thoughtful answer. Um, you touched on this earlier, the prophecy that surrounds um, his eventual death and, and the choice and, and a, and a um, fundamental choice he needs to make. Can you share more about that prophecy? Sure. Um, in book nine. So this is one of the books where he comes in. The Greek captains come to beg him to come back to battle. Um, and he says, look, my mother, Thetis, tells me that I have two fates. Either I can die young here and have immortal glory, or what Greek calls, uh, you know, kleos optiton, um, or I uh, can go home and live a long life without glory. Um, and in that speech, he kind of makes a decision uh, because Agamemnon offers him a whole bunch of stuff to come back, uh, to marry his daughters, to have seven cities in the Peloponnese, all this gold. And Achilles says, look, I can go home and get married there and live there. Um, why should I stay here and die? And he says something powerful, which is that the man who does a lot or the man who does a little dies the same, right? So part of why I think people get attracted to Achilles um, is he undergoes what some of us might consider an existential crisis um, in his uh, system of value um, during the epic. Um, but that basic prophecy you asked about is you'll either like, die young, get eternal glory, or live a long time and nobody will know who he was. Earlier, uh, you mentioned, depending on the tradition, um, Achilles had a romantic, I know you didn't say romantic, but I'll use the term a romantic relationship with Patroclus. So what did you mean by depending on the tradition? Well, so and there's a lot of debates about this today. Um, and I think that it, it come, Homer, Homeric poetry is really cagey about erotic romantic stuff to begin with, right? When people have sex, um, it just happens, but there's no detail, right? This isn't, this isn't romance. Um, and so there were very different practices from one city state to another in ancient Greece when it came to um, what we would describe as same-sex relationships, 
right? So in some city states, it was normal or acceptable to have a sexual relationship with someone who is your age and same gender. In other states, like Athens, during its classical period, is more typical for an older man to have a sexual relationship with a younger adolescent of a certain class. Um, so I think what's actually happening in, happening in Homer um, is a bit of hedging, creating a relationship that's ambiguous enough that different communities can read their values and ideas in it, right? So Homer, so Homer, Achilles and Patroclus sleep in the same tent, but they both take girls with them, right? Um, today we would be like, well, maybe that's weird. We don't know what's going on. Um, but the important thing I think is less sort of the sexual relationship or potential and how close they are to each other and what they mean to each other, right? Um, and when Patroclus dies, Achilles sees himself die. Right? It's a type of love that shakes the way he sees the universe. Personally, um, I don't know if it matters what, whether or not they had sex, right? Um, but that's because, like, you know, I'm totally heteronormative. You know, I think for other people in different audiences and time, being able to read themselves into those characters has been important, right? The the best description, one of my favorite descriptions of this, um, and I'll, sorry, I'll, I'll punt for that for a minute, but mm -hmm. in early. Um, receptions of Homer. So there's um, Aeschylus has played the Myrmidons and definitely in Plato's time, these Athenian audiences saw them as lovers, right? So earlier audiences than ours saw this as the important relationship. Um, and we, I don't think we can totally sidestep that, right? Um, but the thing that, and a beautiful moment in the poem when Achilles is um, lamenting Patroclus, he says, I thought he was going to take my son Neoptolemus home to meet my father. And mm -hmm. so Achilles sees Patroclus as himself, right, as an extension of himself. And this is, in fact, um, the etymological derivation of the word in Greek for philos. Philos means near and dear, but something so close to you that you can't be separate from it, like a limb or a family member. So Patroclus is that to Achilles. I mean, that closest of relationships. Um, and I think that, you know, part of the achievement of Homeric poetry is writing the relationship in such a way that different audiences can see their world in it. Um, but I think probably a majority of ancient Greek audiences um, would have seen it as being sexual or romantic, even though they didn't always think in romantic terms. And okay, so I'm I'm gonna have a follow up question to that, but but uh, a broader question that will probably help me articulate this question that's coming up. Um, so so when it get, gets into like the Iliad and the Odyssey, um, what do scholars rely on contemporarily to be able to even interpret or translate it? Can you speak about the actual like the actual corpus body that exists contemporarily? You mean from that period or for us? For for current yeah current scholars or. Uh, you know, and I perhaps you're relying on something that relied on something that relied on something, right? But can you can you you know can you cover that so people understand? Absolutely. So um, the 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 first or the most recent full manuscripts of the Iliad and the Odyssey that we have go back to the period. Uh, so the the period of what we call the Byzantine Renaissance. So for, and there, we have man, full texts from the ninth to the eleventh century CE. And these versions of the Iliad and the Odyssey um, go back to editions that were edited at Alexandria and other Hellenistic cities following the death of Alexander the Great in 323 CE. 
So the additions we have, um, it's called the Benetus A and B. Uh, you can Google those and see some great images of them from the Center for Hellenic Studies. Um, they have marginal notes in them. So you get like 10 to 15 lines of text on like an 11 by 15 paper, and then it's filled with notes all around. And these are the uh, sort of digested and summarized contributions of generations of editors, scholars, and commentators. They're like footnotes of the ancient world. We're also thinking of them as like hyperlinks in the early web, like go here for more information. Um, so these are our richest sources of information. And uh, so we have commentary traditions going all the way back um, to the Library of Alexandria. Um, so in addition to that, then, we have generations since of people comparing different manuscripts editing them and comment and creating commentary on them well into the modern day so the iliad that i look at typically is the one for the oxford classical text that was edited in 1931 right mm. um, but there was a version by toribner by ml west about 20 years ago um, and there's not much change since the byzantine period there'll be a word here word there different spelling um, conventions and you have the text you have commentary traditions, and then you have dictionaries and interpretations of words uh, that, again, draw on similarly complex and ancient sources. Okay, so thank you for explaining that. So when it comes to looking at something like depending on uh, tradition, is it is it a matter of there actually exists different manuscripts in history that you can look at, or is it about someone interpreting it different, the tradition? Um, so I'm going to answer this in three ways because um, there are very different options. So one is sort of the tradition of myth, right? So when I say different traditions, depending on the tradition when it comes to myth, you know, there are different variations in what happened in the Trojan War tradition. And we find these in different sources, like Greek tragic poets, Greek lyric poets. And one example I'll give you quickly mm -hmm. is Helen, right? Everybody knows that Helen was abducted and went to Troy, and that's why you had the Trojan War except a lyric poet named Stasichorus says that's a lie. And Helen was actually uh, abducted by Hermes, switched out for fake cloud Helen, and Helen spent her time in Egypt, right? And so we get that different tradition reported by Stasichorus, Herodotus, the historian, and showing up as like the main motif in the play Helen by Euripides. So that's the mythical tradition. Then you wanna to get to the manuscript tradition. So we have some variants for the manuscript, but they're rather minor. One that I'll bring up is there in the manuscripts, there's a tradition for the beginning of the poem that says it was sing goddess, the rage of Achilles and Apollo. And so the poem in some way was supposed to be about the rage of Achilles and the rage of a god, right? So a different beginning is kind of a big deal. It's like going to see Star Wars, you know what the opening credits are like, and then suddenly, oh, it's a different one, mm -hmm. right? It's not about Alderaan, it's about some other place little shocking, but not a huge difference because whoever remembers the name of that planet, right? Um, so there are those types of things. And then there's the interpretive tradition, which is really rich because when we read the epics now, we say, all right, this is a nice story about myth. But ancients were really into allegorical interpretations. So there's an entire school saying that the judgment of Paris is actually an allegory about the best way to live your life. It's not about a goddess. It's about choosing the path of wisdom, not wealth, pleasure, and war. 
right? Uh, so we get, you know, entire traditions of interpretations that come along the poems um, that changes what we think is going on. And I'll just continue on this for a moment, if you'll permit me, mm -hmm. because these three different levels um, are different ways we can relate to the text we have. The first one, which shows variance in myths, says, all right, think about how we relate the poems details we have to what other people are saying about the tradition. The second manuscript level says, okay, the manuscript may have been different. Can we trust what we're reading? And the third thing says, all right, there's a tradition of interpreting what we have. Maybe it looks simple and direct, but maybe we got it wrong, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so these different things together, so sort of manuscript, myth detail, and tradition of, of interpretation um, keeps people like me spinning our wheels <laughs> night and day. Love it. Okay, uh, another significant person uh, in Achilles' life in the Iliad was Briseis. Can you speak about her role and as it relates to Achilles in the Iliad? Yeah, so there's this, um, the poem starts with like Achilles and Agamemnon getting into conflict. It's like the ninth line, God, goddess tell us which god sent them into conflict. And they're in conflict over these um, abducted women. And so what happened in ancient... Uh, military conquest is you would sack a city, kill the men, um, take the women as your own concubines, basically your sex slaves, and um, enslave the children if you let them survive, right? Um, and so the poem starts by sort of like, uh, you know, gliding over all of that. Agamemnon and Achilles both have their sort of um, equivalent girls. Uh, Agamemnon has Chryseis, um, Achilles has Briseis, and uh, Agamemnon has to give up Chryseis to stop the plague and in order to do that um he doesn't want to be have his honor and esteem diminished so he insists on taking uh achilles uh so war bride um Berseus. um and so Berseus has been his concubine um his uh you know his war sex slave of something right and there's debate about what the relationship is like um so achilles says that he's really upset when she gets hurt and he claims in book nine um, that she is the bride of his heart, right? Um, and then in book 18, though, or 19, he says, it would have been better if she had died and I had never met her, then we wouldn't have fought. Um, and so there's a lot of debate in Homeric scholarship about whether or not Achilles cares about her, right? And Patroclus, or she herself gets to speak in the Iliad. And she says, she laments for Patroclus because she always said that he was comforting her and telling her that Achilles would take her home and marry her. Um, which again, I think part of the thing we need to change when we read it nowadays is to realize that these are women are, are voices of people who've been subject to sexual violence and rape, right? Um, and what we hear from the text, if you listen, um, is that Patroclus cared about her and tried to take care of her and make her feel better. And Achilles really, I think, uses her as a rhetorical tool, a political tool against uh, Agamemnon. When it's convenient to him, he calls her the bride of his heart. Um, but otherwise, he doesn't seem to show her much concern, right? She is um, part of what is a capital in the ancient world, um, which are movable goods, women, gold, and cattle. Patroclus dies in the Iliad. Um, Patroclus is, is creating promises. Achilles may have uh, made promises to Briseis as well. Um, this, this can come into your answer if, uh, if you want to clarify. 
what's what's known in tradition is anything known in tradition about uh Bryseus's fate do do any other um poets in classical uh Greece uh write about um Bryseus's fate so um Bryseus is probably made up for the Iliad in a way so she doesn't have a real wide presence outside of the Iliad um and you know what what basically happens is Achilles dies in the later poem um and when he dies there um she takes care of his body and is part of his his burial and his lament um so it's sort of like it's sort of like a different type of reception of myth um, in reaction to what happens in the Iliad. Um, and so she shows up in a poem. So there's a much later author named Quintus Smyrnaeus, Quintus of Smyrna, um, who writes a little bit about her. Um, and what happens there um, and, and later is that she's just given off to some other Greek warrior and then she disappears, right? So it's one of those things where she's really just an instrument of like Achilles' anger, his passion, She's on his side. And you mentioned the promises made. So, you know, Patroclus promised her allegedly that Achilles would marry her and take her home. Um, and Achilles in book 19 says, well, I, I wish she had died. That would have been better for all of us. Um, so it really left at the end of, of the Iliad uh, unsure, like what her place is in the world. Um, and later traditions try to like button that up. Right. Uh, she takes care of Achilles' body and then is given to some other hero and then goes off into obscurity. Okay. Um, earlier we were chatting about uh, some canonical sources. So I want to go back and clarify one, um, one item regarding that. Um, so is the, is the canonical source for the, um, the, the epic Homer's epic poems um, so are, were, were those, are, are those actually in the Alexandrian um, a, a library? Can you clarify that point? Yeah, so um, the Iliad and the Odyssey are in are definitely part of the Alexandrian library and things like the Alexandrian library developed to edit, to collect and make sense of Homer. And the epics, even at that period, had such a gravity. Um, that people are pulling in material to help elucidate them. So a lot of the fragments we have of other traditions were brought in commentaries. Um, and then later um, mythography or write-ups of myth like that of Hyginus or Apollodorus, which give us a lot of detail we don't have in Homer, were really written after the Alexandrian period um, to help fill, a, fill in the blanks for what isn't in the epics. So, so like contemporary translations of the Iliad, in some way, they're being sourced back to that book right. in Alexandria. Okay, from, okay, that's that's part, yeah, that's part of why I wanted to clarify that. So, can you summarize how the Iliad wraps up and where I'm kind of getting at? It, it seems very abrupt, and I and so I want to kind of talk yeah. about that that uh, the ending in the actual Iliad. Okay, so can, I want to can I talk briefly about the relationship Please. between the Iliad and its tradition, and then talk. Please, about yeah, that yeah, R run with it, yeah. Um, so the Iliad has what we call a metonymic relationship to its tradition, which is a part for whole relationship. It tell, it evokes the themes of the whole Trojan War, but only tells 57 or so days, okay? Um, and it tells a, a specific arc, right? And the arc is you start with the conflict between Agamemnon and Achilles, and you end with the burial of Hector, right? Um, the last line of the Iliad, I think, is hos gamphi upon um, tafon, uh, Hectorosipodemoios, which is the, thus they made the burial of horse-taming Hector. 
Um, so it is surprising every time I've taught it to like myth students, they're like, dude, where's the Trojan horse? Or <laughs> when does Achilles die? Right? Um, because what the thing is, it's a thematic hole. It is not a plot hole. Right? It tells a story of Achilles' rage. Um, and when Achilles kills Hector, he's, assign he's consigning himself to death. So his death has already been anticipated many ways in the narrative, mainly through Patroclus, but also through the foot wounding of Diomedes in Book 11. And the burial of Hector, in a way, is a metonym for the honoring and burial of all the war, of all the war dead. Um, so it's surprising, but it's prefaced by giving Hector's body back. The moment when Priam and Achilles get together is the honoring of a ransom of a child, which thematically answers what happens in book one when Agamemnon refuses to ransom a child and Achilles leaves the body politic. At the end of the epic, he rejoins community. He rejoins humanity and honors the right of ransoming a child and then Hector's buried. So there are all these intricate thematic relationships that are explored in the epic. Um, and I think that the surprise is part of it. Another dangerous thing um, is that we often think that the Homeric epics are the standard stories, right? I think instead it's more profitable to imagine that they're the final stories that were told and they're actually surprising engagements with the stories that came together, um, sort of leaving us with bated breath and leaving us with a, an interesting dynamic telling of the story without needing to tell the whole tale. Okay, uh, no conversation in contemporary times on Achilles would be fully complete without bringing up the idiom uh, Achilles heel. Can you speak about where that comes from? <laughs> I mean, I can. I don't love it, right? So the story, uh, the story that is post-Homeric, without a doubt, is that um, Achilles was invulnerable everywhere except in his heel because his mother dipped him in the river Styx um, and was holding his heel when she put him in. Um, I think that this story is a later explanation because people don't understand why heroes die of foot wounds. But you have tons of heroes in myth who have, pro who have problems with their feet. And so in simple terms, um, we have in English the term the, the quick and the dead. And quickness is uh, about being alive. It's about vitality. So Achilles is swift-footed Achilles. His feet are a symbol of his heroic vitality. And in the symbolic language of myth, when he gets shot in the foot, it makes an exception, right? It tears asunder the very thing that makes him heroic and he dies, right? And so this is complicated, right? It's symbolic. And I think what develops over time is an explanatory myth that makes him invulnerable everywhere else. Uh, but the, I guess to backtrack a little though, there's no sign of that in the Iliad, except for book 11, when Diomedes, who's a big, strong hero and who stands in for Achilles in battle when Achilles is gone, is shot in the heel by Paris, the very hero who everybody knows kills Achilles in the tradition. And Diomedes laughs and he says to Paris, oh, Paris, you shot me as a woman or a child would. This is nothing. It's a scratch. But he still has to leave the battlefield because of it. So I think the idea of Achilles dying of a foot wound is definitely prior to the Iliad that we possess. But the Iliad we possess is completely disinterested in it because it's not part of the more realistic world that it's establishing. So is Achilles' death, Do is there consensus 
with scholars that he dies of a of of a foot wound and if if there if there is um how did he how did he receive it is there is there anything outside of the the iliad that um people have leaned on to uh either uh, as much as possible reasonably theorize or uh conclude how achilles died well, so i mean as i was talking about with the alexandrian manuscripts of homer and the later ones um, we have all these commentaries in the margin that draws on older sources that cites mythographers like Pherocytes, who we don't have. Um, but it's really sort of the later myth handbooks like Apollodorus and Hyginus, uh, where you get the, all the details in the full story. And there's also a, an author named Proclus who wrote Summary of the Epic Cycle, where we get some of that material. And the basic story that's given there um, is that he died. He, he died... Um, at the hands of Apollo and Paris near the gates of Troy. Um, mm. So many people, when they look at the Iliad um, and they see how Patroclus dies, um, which is with the help of Apollo, and they see that joke I mentioned um, with Diomedes getting hit um, in, a, in the foot by Paris. And Diomedes really functions as an Achilles replacement in the poem. Um, it, they, they, the assumption that scholars make uh, is that audiences of Homer knew this account, that Achilles always died by some type of, of a wound from Paris with Apollo's help. And so, you know, my basic take is that Homer wasn't interested in crazy things like people dying from foot wounds um, and was trying to tell a, a different story. Um, but there's a whole book on this by, by a guy from, from uh, at University of Toronto, Jonathan Burgess, um, and the name of the book is The Death and Afterlife of Achilles, where he goes through lots of these different um, accounts um, and how they coalesce and don't. Okay, and the, the, the one tradition you mentioned about him dying at the, uh, uh, the Sion Gates, uh, what, year, what, what year, if it's known, was that tradition written about? Well, I mean, that's post-Hellenistic, so 200 BCE or later. But um, I really think that, uh, uh, that that was probably uh, an extant narrative, like an available narrative prior to the classical period, right? Um, it's just whether or not, like, his heel was part of it, right? And so the different mm -hmm. elements, right? Apollo helping to kill Achilles is one element. Paris being the one who kills him is another. And then dying by foot wound is another besides that, right? Um, and so I think probably those elements were there early on mm. prior to Homer. Um, but the whole invulnerability thing um, for being dipped in river sticks, I think we see that in Statius. Um, so that's the first century CE um, and maybe in a few authors before, but that's, that's a rather late part of the narrative. Okay. So you, you believe that Achilles' death is is covered in some way in tradition prior to the, what we have as the Iliad and the Odyssey. Um, and that would have probably been in uh, oral tradition. It also could have been in written uh, tradition, but we just we, it, it, it hasn't survived. And it could have also been an artwork. I mean, one of the things that, you know, we have a lot of evidence for in Greek myth, um, oh, sorry, a lot of... The genres of a lot of evidence for Greek myth in um, is vase art, right? And usually vase art has stuff in it that's not in Homer at all. Um, so one a popular uh, motif of Achilles in vase art is Achilles um, stalking Troilus, um, or um, Achilles playing a board game with Ajax, 
or um, Achilles killing Penthesilea, the queen of the Amazons. Right? Um, now we think that was from a different epic, right? but we don't actually have that one. So what's interesting is when we look at other evidence we have, say from Greek tragedy or from art, um, Homer tends to be on the outside looking in rather than the other way around. Okay, closing question for you, Joel. Can you share a panoramic of Achilles showing up in tradition? What's what what in known tradition? Um, and it doesn't have to be comprehensive, given the uh, the amount of time we have today in this conversation. And it's okay if you mention items that you feel are relevant that you may have already mentioned in this episode, just to create as a final question and answer um, a panoramic view of. Uh, Achilles in tradition after the Iliad. Absolutely. So there, there's a uh, there's this thing people call the epic cycle, which is allegedly a series of of poems that told the whole story of the Trojan War. Um, I don't think they ever existed that way. I think we had lots of different poems in the Trojan War, and later scholars made up this idea of the cycle. Right? But we do know that there was other tales about Achilles, and one of them happens after he kills um, Hector. And that's when Penthesilea comes, um, along with Memnon, king of the Ethiopians. She's the king of the um, Amazons. Um, and we have the lost epic, the Ethiopians. And in this epic, um, he kills Penthesilea, the queen of the Amazons, after he falls in love with her. Um, so you can cue a Guns N' Roses song there. I used to love her, if you'd like. Um, but, on the other, but on the other side of that, and then he kills Thersides, who's in the, um, in the Iliad. Um, and then eventually um, he gets killed um, by Paris with the aid of Apollo. Right? Um, and in this, he's gone into rage again over the death of Nestor's son, Antilochus. Um, and you really have rep repetitions. You might even think of them as, as recyclings of the same motifs driving towards that end. The important thing, of course, is that Achilles has a son whose name is Neoptolemus, or in the Roman tradition, Pyrrhus, who has to be brought to Troy to fight in his place because having like a descendant of Peleus or I excuse me, Iacus is so mm -hmm. important mm -hmm. in that tradition. Um, so that's the main sort of Iliadic tradition, uh, sorry, Homeric tradition. Um, there's a cult tradition near the, in the Black Sea, northern modern day Turkey, um, where he was worshiped as a god uh, um, for some time. He had sort of cult rites. Um, and he shows up, of course, in the Odyssey. And so the Odyssey is his most famous non-Iliadic appearance uh, because Odysseus, of course, he's telling the story, sees him in the underworld. And Achilles says uh, to Odysseus, don't lie to me about death, Odysseus. It's not glory. I would rather be a servant to a poor man, a dirt farmer, than prince or king of the dead. Right. Um, so this is a, a, a reflection on what Achilles says about his famous choice. Um, and it's a part of sort of the contrast between the Iliad and the Odyssey. I always say that the Iliad's a poem that teaches you what is worth dying for, and the Odyssey teaches you why you should live. Um, and Achilles is a different person in the, uh, in the Odyssey because he's dead, but also he's being instrumentalized to evoke the themes of the Odyssey, which is about surviving and living on. Um, so I think that's probably the first place to go. And then he appears in, in some tragic poetry. Um, so he's, he's a big figure in um, Euripides' Iphigenia at Aulus. I think that's probably the most sympathetic version of Achilles that you get outside of the Homeric tradition. Okay. It was very nice speaking with you today, Joel. Thanks for coming on the show.
It's great to be here. Thank you. Okay, everybody. The couple books that I mentioned at the start of the episode that Dr. Christensen wrote as examples. He's uh, co-author of Homer's Thebes, Epic Rivalries and the Appropriation of Mythical Pasts. And he's author of The Many-Minded Man, The Odyssey, Psychology, and the Therapy of Epic. I'll drop links to both the books in the show notes on the Ithacabound.com's associated subpage to this episode. Joel and everybody listening, as always, wishing a marvelous journey. Bye for now. Thank you. Hey again. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe to the podcast and I wish you a bountiful rest of your day. Bye for now.